about a month or so ago, Alan uh, asked me to preach today because he was going to be traveling um, this week uh, leading up to today. So he asked me to cover for him to preach. And so I appreciate the the opportunity and I'm always uh, glad to be able to, to preach God's word. So uh, recently reading through the book of Colossians, uh, I kind of came to see chapter 3 really as kind of a blueprint, a blueprint for the Christian life because in it Paul speaks of these just wonderful doctrinal things that we can apply uh, not just in practical ways but in really truly spiritual ways to our lives in meaningful ways. So what I want to do is just start by <clears throat> reading verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3. So if you'll turn there, we'll read verses 1 through 4 together. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to gather together today to worship you in song, to worship you together uh, corporately. We just uh, pray that you'll bless now this time of looking at your word and considering the things that you've said in it. And we just pray that you would work in all of our lives. Um, Help Alan and others who may be dealing with sickness to to feel better soon. As we know this time of year, uh, these things go around, of course, and many people are sick, Lord, so we just pray for healing and recovery for, for all who may be dealing with those things. We pray for safety on the roads today as the weather uh, will supposedly be getting bad. We just pray that uh, you keep everyone safe on their journeys home. And Lord, we just rely upon you and depend upon you and your spirit for whatever you do here today through your word, but that you would work in our hearts uh, through what your word says and through what we've sung and, and our worship together. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this text is the very first word, at least in the New American Standard, therefore. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. And we know uh, as good Bereans, as good students of the word, right, we're supposed to go back and see what is this therefore, therefore, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And we have to do that, and we're going to do that as we go through this text. Because the word indicates not only a continuation of what Paul has already been talking about, but also a conclusion that's drawn from those things. So again, I want to start just looking at verse 1. And if you notice that the, the title of the sermon is Raised Up with Christ. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. So notice here who Paul is addressing. He's addressing those who have been raised up with Christ. What does this mean though? Uh, is this a metaphor? Um, is it just symbolic? Does it have a deeper meaning? Uh, is it uh, representing a spiritual reality? I'm using a slideshow today, and I've never preached with a slideshow, slideshow so uh, hopefully this goes okay using this. But some would, some would point to passages like this and say, well, that it's a metaphor. They might point to verses like Luke 15, 24, the prodigal son, where the father says, This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Or they may point to 1 Timothy 5, 6, where 
Paul is talking about the widows in the church, and he says, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And of course, it's important uh, to compare Scripture with Scripture, and, but we have to go to each text also and look at the context of what is going on in each one. And really, we have to be careful not to allow uh, passages that are less clear or implicit to guide our understandings on those that are very clear and explicit. It should be the other way around. But really, I think Paul has uh, here in mind more than just a spiritualized metaphor when he says, if you have been raised up with Christ. I think he's speaking about a spiritual reality that corresponds to the words that he's actually using. But as I said, we have to go back and see what the therefore is there for. So just going back to chapter 2 of Colossians, let's look at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul writes, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now notice here just this clearly spiritual language that Paul is using. He's not meaning to convey some metaphor, but he's talking about a spiritual reality, a circumcision made without hands. And the result of that is the removing of the body of the flesh or the body of the sins of the flesh, depending upon your translation. And he says that all this is through the circumcision of Christ. And what you'll see in this passage uh, a lot, really, as you go through Colossians, is you'll see that what happens to Christ physically also happens to us spiritually. And there's also this covenantal aspect of the language that he's using here as well, which we'll see in a moment. Um, But I don't think we think about it a lot, but even the circumcision of Christ imparts spiritual blessings to us. Uh, In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, uh, Luke writes about it in just kind of a matter-of-fact, direct way, talking about how Christ, as an eight-day-old baby, was circumcised. And this would have been according to what the law of God said to do. So this would have been a matter of obedience uh, for Joseph and Mary. And so it just kind of speaks matter-of-factly about it. This is what happened. Um, But Paul here, he's telling believers that through Christ's circumcision, we also have received a circumcision, but it's not a physical one. And other passages in the New Testament bear this out. Romans 2, 28 says, For he is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Or Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes here to the Philippians, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And it's interesting, the word that's translated false circumcision is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. Um, And so if you'll notice where it says true circumcision in verse 3, that word, at least here in the New American Standard, which is what I'm using, that word true is italicized. And what that means is that the translators inserted it, try to help you give the meaning because they're making a contrast between what they've translated as false circumcision, which could be also translated as concision or mutilation. They're contrasting that, those two things, so they insert the word true. So just take the word true out for a minute because it's not in the Greek text. It's just something they added. Paul says here in Philippians to these Gentile believers, for we are 
the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Same thing he said in Colossians. Or Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now you might say, well, I don't see the word circumcision uh, in that verse at all. Well, if you study Galatians, you'll see that, of course, Paul is talking about circumcision a lot because he's uh, trying to help the believers in the regions of Galatia understand against what they're being taught by others that they have to be circumcised to be saved. Others are telling them that and he's teaching them otherwise. But also notice, if notice the highlighted words especially. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants. You are Abraham's seed. Now, who was it that God gave a covenant to that he would bless all the families in the earth and then gave that person uh, circumcision as the sign and seal of that covenant. It was Abraham. You can go back in Genesis chapter 17 and read about that. So we see that those who are in Christ are the descendants of Abraham. In other words, they're the circumcision, what we've already been reading. And the point here that I'm trying to bring out is that Paul is clearly speaking about spiritual realities that believers have experienced in Christ. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all those covenants. Um, And by faith in Him, as He was circumcised uh, as an eight-day-old infant, so we have been circumcised spiritually in Him. Not metaphorically, but spiritually and really by the Spirit of God. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. Just as a little bit of backup on that, Matthew Henry... uh, and this is his uh, commentary on this exact text, he said, Christ was circumcised, and by virtue of our union to him, we partake of that effectual grace which puts off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, let's look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Just continuing on there, he says, so after speaking about circumcision as a spiritual reality, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now there's a lot here in this passage that could be explored. Uh, In the interest of time, I realized that I just couldn't really dig into it for this particular sermon. Um, But what I want to point out here is that Paul is speaking of these spiritual realities, spiritual realities that believers experience because of our union with Christ. And you would find the same thing in relation to baptism if you looked at Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 11, for example. Uh, Jim Eliff, who we saw in the video uh, right before uh, the fire video, um, and if you remember, he spoke here, he preached here in November, and he spoke at our Reformed Conference. He said this, I was reading a little book of his recently, and he said this, A true church are people who have been united with Christ spiritually. They know Him, and He knows them. They live in spiritual union with Him through His Word and prayer. And so it's because of this union, really, that whatever happens to Christ happens to us, whether it's circumcision, death, burial, resurrection, all these things, they are uh, spiritual realities that we experience, and they're all symbolized through baptism. I believe that's the point that Paul's making in reference to baptism. And the Waldenses, uh, a really strong uh, group of believers, at least they used to be, going back to the 1100s, I looked through their confessions of faith, and in their 1544 confession of faith, they said this, 
We believe that in the ordinance of baptism, the water is the visible and external sign, which represents to us that which, by virtue of God's invisible operation, is within us, namely the renovation of our minds and the mortification of our members through the faith of Jesus Christ. And by this ordinance, we are received into the holy congregation of God's people, previously professing and declaring our faith and change of life. So again, notice what I've highlighted there, just to get the main point, that they're saying that the water of baptism, it's the visible and external sign of what God, by virtue of his invisible operation, is within us. In other words, spiritual realities, not metaphors, but spiritual realities. Um, and so that's what baptism outwardly symbolizes, these spiritual realities that we experience, experience within. And really, if you go a little further back in the passage in Colossians 2, uh, this would even be borne out a little bit more. We just don't have time to do that. Uh, and notice again the last part of verse 12, where he says, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the working of God here, the operation of God as they used, uh, of God here, it's God's power in raising Christ from the dead. And so we have faith in this power, but it's only because God raised us up first. Uh, in fact, a very literal way of rendering this is, you were raised up through the faith of the working of God. In other words, it's not that you had faith that resulted uh, in your being raised, but that the power of God raised you up and produced in you a faith in Christ. John Calvin states here on this same text, he says, faith is founded upon the power of God. So although resurrection precedes faith, there's no salvation without faith. One cannot be said to be raised up with Christ and yet have no faith within him. And those who are raised up with Christ will certainly have a faith in him. And this is even borne out a little bit more in the next verse, uh, as we'll see in some other passages that we'll take a look at. So let's look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So what? notice here the when. When did God make us alive? He said it was when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh. So if we were dead... And God made us alive. We were uncircumcised, but God gave us a spiritual circumcision when he raised us up with Christ. So again, this is not a metaphor. This is a spiritual reality in these passages. That's what Paul's discussing here. And really, we can't discuss this without looking uh, at what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. So actually, what, uh, if you will, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, or I'll have it up here on the slide. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Now, recently I heard a sermon uh, and the preacher was preaching. This was his text. And he spent a good amount of time on the first part of the verse speaking about the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God can do all things. God is almighty. All these things, which was great. And then he came to the second part of the verse where it says, according to the power that works within us, and he began to state how what that means is that even though God is almighty and powerful and sovereign and can do all things, etc., that because of our lack of availability, we have the power to thwart 
God's purposes and to thwart God's plans. Aside from the fact that that's not a scriptural idea anyway, that is definitely not what this text is teaching, and I'll show you that. Because really, if you look through Ephesians, there's kind of a thread. And if you pull on that thread, it'll take you back to chapter 1, at least verses 18 through 20, maybe even further back. But it'll take you back to at least uh, verses eight, uh, chapter 1, 18 through 20, where Paul says this. Speaking to the Ephesian believers, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. So he's wanting them to know some things. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And, so he's wanting to know this, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he's going to explain what that power is. He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the power of God uh, that works toward us, that works in us, is not some power by which we can thwart God's purposes from our lack of availability. It's actually the resurrection power of God. It's the power of God over life and death. It's the power that God has to take that which is dead and raise it to life. That's the power that works within us. That's the power by which God is able to do far abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Not just what we can ask or think, but far above that. God can supersede that by his power, and that power is the resurrection power. It's the power by which he raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that works toward us. That's the power that works within us. It doesn't originate with us. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. It's God's sovereign power over death and life. And really that correlates with chapter 2, verse 12, where, where he says, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. But Paul continues this, discussion in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So we'll move to that and we'll read uh, starting in 1 through 3 and then we'll we'll make it through verse 6. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, we'll just stop right there for a second. That is a point-blank, matter-of-fact, direct statement. Paul is not mincing words. He's not using metaphors. He's not using some uh, fluffy language. He's speaking directly to the believers and said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, if you use the King James or the New King James, you'll notice that the translators inserted the words hath he quickened or he made alive uh, after the word you. And you'll note that because it's in italics. And based on the grammatical structure of uh, the verse, I think it actually makes sense that they did that. It doesn't take away from the meaning at all either way. And I think it does a good job of connecting uh, what's said in chapter 1 into what Paul is going to say here in chapter 2. So we'll start again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul here is pointing out the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we lived lives that showed that. We lived according to the desires of our sinful nature. Let's look at verse 4. But God... Now think about that. He's just said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were uh, children of nature, uh, children of wrath by nature, even as the rest, so just like all the rest of mankind. So what's going to change that? What's going to be uh, the factor that changes that whole thing? But God. But God. That's the difference. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, in this little parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. We saw that in Colossians 3, chapter 1, if you've been raised up with Christ. So after telling believers that God is working towards them with the same power by which he has raised Christ from the dead, he then tells them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, that God has raised them from that state of death, and that by the same power he is able to do far abundantly all that they could ask or think. So here's what Paul is saying here. He's talking about as a spiritual reality, we were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We didn't know God. We didn't want to know God. We just wanted our, whatever our sin nature wanted, we just wanted to continue in our sin. We were in a state of spiritual death. We were completely cut off from God because this is the natural state of all human beings. He said in, in, in uh, the slide before, even as the rest, just like everyone else. This is the state of mankind in his natural state. And if, if it had not been for God's mercy and love towards us, as we've seen here, we would have remained in that state. So I believe that when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that that's exactly what he means to convey. I don't believe that he's conveying some kind of metaphor or some kind of other language. I think he's speaking directly about spiritual realities. Um, and really, just as we think of someone who has physically died, as sad as that is, so we are to think the same way of our spiritual state naturally. And really, and let me say this before I move on, uh, I had the sermon prepared before Alan's sermon last week, but I end up having the same uh, illustration that he has, and I think that's okay. I'm going to go ahead and use it, because I do believe that the prime example of this uh, concept that Paul is speaking here is Lazarus. Just think about Lazarus for a moment. Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb. He had no ability to hear anyone calling him come forth, let alone any ability to actually act upon that and do it. He had no ability, but he did it, right? Think about Mary and Martha, all the Jews that were following them, uh, weeping and, and with all their sorrow and grief. If they had come to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, what would have happened? Nothing. There would have been no result. Nothing would have happened. If we could have been there and done the same thing, we could have wept with them with all our emotion, come to the grave and just cried for Lazarus to come forth. Nothing. He would have remained in a state of death. But Christ had the ability to speak to Lazarus beyond the grave and to call him forth from it. And so when he said, Lazarus, come forth, I don't believe that it was a suggestion, a request, a uh, a call to make a decision. I believe it was a command given by the power of God which gave a dead man the ability to do something that dead men cannot do. And really so it is with us according to Paul. Our natural state, spiritually speaking, is a state of death. And we have absolutely no ability to raise ourselves from that. But the power of God that raised Lazarus and more importantly that raised Christ is the power uh, that works in us. Is the power... That raises, um, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. 
The power of God that raised Lazarus, and more importantly, Christ, has called from us beyond the grave with a command to come forth. And so really, if you are in Christ, if you have found salvation in Christ, this is your experience. This is what has happened to you, whether you understand it or not. This is what God has done in your life. And really, so it is with the gospel call. With the gospel call, when we preach the gospel to others, we have no ability to raise them from the dead. We have no ability to do that. But as we preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God moves in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, and He raises them from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. And so it's not that God has done His part, and now you must do yours. It's that God has done it all, and He has brought you from death to life and given you a faith in Christ. You see, it's all His work, and He deserves all the glory. I believe the Scripture bears that out over and over again. And really, I think a lot of encouragement can be found in understanding this nature of our faith, the nature of our salvation. Um, I think it will strengthen your spiritual life. And a lot of us probably did not understand this when we were converted. Probably did not understand this at all. Uh, we understood it later as we studied the Scripture or heard teaching from the Scripture or, scripture or read some commentary or something like that. Many of us may have thought that trusting Christ was something that we decided. But really, it wasn't. We were in a state of spiritual death, and while we were in that state, God raised us to life and gave us faith in His Son. And Paul will go on to say that in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which we will see in a moment. But first, I want to quote Jim Eliff again, because I just thought this was a great quote from this little book I was reading. He says, Salvation is of the Lord. God is the author of it, as He is the author of all things. We view regeneration, or the new birth, as a sovereign act of God accomplished by His Spirit, not something accomplished because of any human action or decision. Even though repentance and faith are required of us, they are gifts from Him as they proceed only from hearts He has made alive. So hopefully you can see here that thinking about our main text from Colossians chapter 3, that when Paul said, you have been raised with Christ, that he's not speaking uh, metaphorically but that he's speaking about our spiritual state. He's speaking about spiritual realities. And we mentioned the passage about the prodigal son in Luke 15. And you know, there may be some sense in which that passage is metaphorical and how it was stated. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul talks about the widow uh, living in pleasure and being dead while she lives. Personally, I think he's saying that a woman who, this widow who shows herself to live that way, unrepentant, just totally living for pleasure, is showing herself to be lost. She's showing that she has not been raised from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. And so then, the next question you might say, well, what about my free will? And here's what I would answer. I would say that your will is free, but it's only free to act according to its nature, which Paul said is dead in trespasses and sins. And really, it's not going to do anything else until it's acted upon by an outside, outside force, which is the resurrecting power of God working towards us. In other words, spiritually speaking, we have the same freedom that Lazarus had physically when he was rotting and stinking in the grave. So really, the same sense in which your will is free is the same sense by which it is bound by your sin nature. Again, I want to turn to the Waldenses. This is a, a later uh, confession of faith, 1655. They said this in Article 9, that man by his transgression lost that righteousness and holiness which he had received and thus incurring the wrath of God 
became subject to death and bondage under the dominion of him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Notice what they say here. Insomuch that our free will has become a servant and a slave to sin. And thus all men, remember Paul said, even as the rest, all men, both Jews and Gentiles, are by nature children of wrath, being all dead in their trespasses and sins, and consequently incapable, consequently incapable of the least good motion to anything which concerns their salvation. Yea, incapable of one good thought without God's grace, all their imaginations being wholly evil, and that continually. And even in the the same confession in the next article, they said this, that all the posterity of Adam is guilty in him of his disobedience, infected by his corruption, and fallen into the same calamity with him, even the very infants from their mother's womb, whence is derived the name of original sin. This is our experience spiritually. But I also want to turn to the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, because 100 Baptist churches in London came together at this time and, and put together this Confession of Faith. And in chapter 6, paragraph 2, they said this, Our first parents, referencing Adam and Eve, by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all. All becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And that includes mind, emotions, and will. In paragraph 3 they said this, They, being the root and God's uh, root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed, so they gave us their corrupted nature, to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, that's all of us, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. And then the, the next paragraph there in the same chapter says, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and holy, inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgression. So hopefully we can see from these things uh, that our will isn't free, it's ultimately enslaved to our sin nature. Now theologically, this being dead and our trespasses and sins that Paul keeps mentioning, uh, it's referred to as total depravity. And other theologians have used other words, for example, R.C. Sproul liked to use uh, the term radical depravity, and he was referencing the Latin word radix, which means root. Um, And of course, this doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could be. Uh, That would be called absolute depravity. You know, there are plenty of serious sins that most of us have not committed. Of course, we know Christ even showed that a lot of those things come to our heart. If you've uh, looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with your heart. John said, if you've hated your brother, you've committed murder. But in 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 a real sense, there's a lot of these things that most of us have not committed. So we're not doing every single evil thing that we could possibly do. And even unbelievers that we know are not always doing every single evil thing that we do. Because we have the presence of conscience and laws, which are common grace of God that give us internal and external uh, ways to deter those things that we might be pulled toward doing from our sin, uh, by our sin nature. 
So total, total or radical depravity then, it really just means that our entire being is affected uh, by our sin nature, which includes our will, our desires, our affections. So we may not commit every evil, but we are naturally in a state of death. We are in a state that is at enmity with God, that hates God and loves our sin, even if we appear outwardly to be decent, decent moral people to ourselves and maybe even to others. Um, and another supporting element of this is the fact that where the Bible speaks of us being raised up, uh, the Greek verbs always show that we are not doing the acting, uh, but we are being acted upon. So, for example, uh, if Paul is speaking and he's speaking of you or we, speaking, to believe, speaking of believers or about believers, being the subject, the verb in Greek, and Greek does this better than English does, it's always passive. So it's always showing that we are not doing the verb, but the verb is being done to us. And on the other hand, when God is the subject, God is doing the raising, the verb is always active, showing that God is doing the raising. So he is acting, he's the one acting. And the same is true with the idea of being born again. In John chapter 3, we see this clearly. John 3, 3, Jesus said, uh, answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or John 3, 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, a lot of times we take this phrase, you must be born again, and we use it as a command, telling people, this is what you must do. You must do this. But that's really not Christ, what Christ was saying. Uh, the verb there, you there, would be the subject, and the verb is passive, meaning this is something that must be done to you. You must be born again. And another subject for another time, but born again can also be translated as born from above. Um, and even the word must there, it is a verb that means it is necessary. So Christ is saying there that if you want to see the kingdom of God, it is necessary that you must be born again, that this must be something that happens to you, must be done to you, because that verb is pass- it's in the passive voice. Um, and this you can see this also from a couple of other passages in John 3. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit is doing this work in our hearts. And this work of God is known as uh, regeneration or the new birth. Um, And it's more than just a statement of the fact that we have been saved. It's really more of an expression or an explanation of how we were saved. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and I love 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, the verse says this, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Or very literally, it says, out of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Your being in Christ is out of him. It's by his doing. It comes from God. Uh, Paul, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Early in John's Gospel, he speaks of the new birth in this way. I'll turn to that here. He says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born, he's talking about spiritual birth here, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's interesting here that he does, John does here mention uh, the, the fact that faith and receiving Christ by faith is necessary to be saved, and it, act, it absolutely is. But then he totally denies that that uh, new birth comes from our own will. Uh, James mentions it also in James chapter 1, 8, 18, and I believe uh, Alan had these same slides up last week. Uh, but again, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It was God's will. It was God's doing. He begat us again, if you want to look at the King James. First Peter 1, 3, uh, 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, saw that in Ephesians, has caused us to be, be born again or hath begotten us again. God has done this. This is God's work. God has caused this to come to pass. Now again, think back to the passage that we looked at in Ephesians 2. Uh, in verse 5, uh, uh, we saw that even when we were dead in our transgressions, that God made us alive together with Christ. And then this little parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved. So he states clearly that uh, we were dead and God has spiritually resurrected us. It was a process in which we no, had no part. And then he underscores that by saying that this is what it means to be saved by grace. So he's first, if you remember, he first attributed this to God's love and his mercy uh, for us in verse 4. And now he states that the best and clearest way to understand salvation is uh, by grace is to understand that that means that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God has raised us up. And then in verse 8 he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And I don't believe here that he means that our faith has brought us into a state of grace. Uh, I think this wouldn't make sense for several reasons. Number one, he has already said that we were dead in our sins and God raised us up. He's already stated that clearly. And then after stating this in verse 8, he adds this phrase, uh, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So he's already, I believe this statement clearly refers to faith because Paul has already attributed our spiritual resurrection as an act of God's grace in verses 4 and 5. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God raised you up because you were saved by grace. So personally, I think it would be ludicrous for the phrase and that not of yourselves to refer to grace because he's already shown that grace is an act of God alone. It, he's already shown that it cannot be from you. So he's saying that even the faith that you have comes from God. And, and then it doesn't make sense then that one who is dead in trespasses and sins can even have saving faith because it requires the resurrecting power of God to bring them out of that state. Now I think Paul is clearly asserting here that having raised us out of our spiritual state of death by his grant, grace alone that he has granted us a true and saving faith in Christ. Now we've considered the spiritual state and the spiritual reality of our resurrection. And hopefully that was clear. Hopefully that made sense. But next, I just want to look at the necessity of this resurrection. Uh, so we'll turn back to Colossians 3, verse 1. I have it up there if you just want to look at the slide. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. And so I believe this word if is a very powerful word because it shows uh, a contingency, a dependency upon something else. The ability to desire the things that Paul is going to tell the believers in Colossae to, do, to, to desire to do, let alone the actual ability to do them, is going to hinge entirely upon the fact of whether or not they have been raised up with Christ. If they have not experienced this resurrection, 
then the rest of what Paul says, it really isn't going to make any sense to them. But if they have been resurrected spiritually with Christ, then Paul tells them to seek the things above, to set their affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. And we really don't have time to explore what that means, uh, to seek the things above in this sermon. But I think we can be sure of at least three things. Number one, if you have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, that this is the result of God acting upon you by His grace alone. Number two, if resurrection is a spiritual reality for you that it is incumbent upon you uh, by the grace of God to give serious heed to what Paul continues to tell uh, the Colossians in those next few verses about seeking the things above. And number three, if you have not been raised spiritually with Christ, you will not be able to do those things. You will not be able uh, to seek the things above because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're only going to care for the things of this life, even though in some sense or another you may be even religious. You're not going to have desire for the things above. It's being spiritually resurrected in Christ that gives us the desire and the ability to seek the things above. Now, if you notice, on if you're looking at the outline, <clears throat> number three, uh, preview. It was originally my intention to preach through verses 1 through 4 in this message. But as I was working through it, I realized I wasn't going to be able to get uh, past verse 1, so I would have to save those other things for later. But I did want to give just a brief preview of those verses and how it will relate to even what we've said here today. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you'll see three things at least. You'll see, number one, this past spiritual reality that you have been raised up with Christ. And then as you get to verses 3 and 4, you'll see another spiritual reality, the return of Christ. And I don't mean to imply that that's spiritual only, that it's not physical, it's certainly physical, but what I mean by saying spiritual reality is that the return of Christ relates to our salvation. And then sandwiched in between those two realities, this past and this future, is this present how to live the Christian life, the blueprint for the Christian life, and how he's going to bear that out uh, through the rest of chapter 3, of seeking the things above, uh, setting your mind and your affections on the things above, not on the things of earth, uh, for your life is hid with Christ in God, and you're going to be revealed with Christ when he returns. So these, you have this past and this future spiritual realities, and then you have this present, how to live the Christian life. And so it doesn't make sense to me that if, the latter, the return of Christ, and then the present being seek the things above, because Paul is telling them what to do. Seek the things above. He's telling them something clearly, the way they are to live their Christian lives, and he's not speaking metaphorically there. So it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems logical and reasonable to me that if those two are spiritual realities, if they're real things that Paul is talking about, then so is being raised up with Christ that it cannot be a metaphor. It is a spiritual reality that has happened within us according to what we've already seen. But we can't truly understand what it means to be raised up with Christ if we haven't understood what we were raised from. That we were naturally in a state of spiritual death, dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies of God, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. And God, by His grace alone, has raised us up and given us a faith in Christ. It's not going to make sense. In conclusion, when Paul addresses those who have been raised up with Christ, I don't believe, uh, or he is, he's not merely addressing believers 
in that sense, but he's identifying spiritual realities that all believers have experienced because of our union with Christ. We saw that a lot in those quotes. It's all that union with Christ brings these realities about in our lives. But again, we can't really comprehend this until we understand that we were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And being raised up with Christ will naturally have a radical effect on your life. It's going to affect how you live your, live your life, which is why Paul is going to talk about seeking the things above. But we know that we still wrestle with sin, of course. That's why I think Paul even has to tell them that and has to contrast it with not the things of the earth because that tendency is still going to be there. Uh, so perhaps you know, you're a Christian here today and you've been challenged by what I've said. Uh, maybe it's been challenging. Maybe you've never even heard something uh, spoken this way of the spiritual reality of being dead in trespasses and sins. Or maybe you've heard such an idea and even rejected it. That's okay. I just pray that you would take the time to consider what the Scripture says on these things, that, uh, that in our natural state we were sinners, and God, by His resurrecting grace, has raised us up in Christ. I think if you understand this, if you understand the nature of your salvation in this way, I think it will be very humbling and very encouraging. And it will be humbling to know that if God had not reached down and raised us up to spiritual life with Christ, that we would have remained in that state. We'd, we would still be there. We would be dead in our sins. And really, you'll begin to see that God receives all the honor and glory for your salvation, all of it, 100%. Maybe you're here today and you've not been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Well, the call of the gospel to you is to repent of your sins, to come to Christ by faith, to call upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation and the hope of eternal life. That's the call of the gospel to you, that God would raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you again for our time here together. We thank you for your word. I pray that to the best of my ability that it's been clear, Lord, and as perhaps it has not been, I just pray that your spirit would still work in the hearts of your people, that just to give a clarity from your scripture, that you would cause us all to study your scripture more, to understand these things, that we would be humbled by understanding that You have raised us up by your grace, that you have done this work in our lives, and it is not something that we did. But you did give us a faith, and you did call us forth like Lazarus, and we did come forth by your grace. And for those who may be here who don't know you, we pray that you would work in that way. Or for our our loved ones, our neighbors and our co-workers that we know who are, even as the rest, nature by nature, children of wrath, dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that you would raise them up, whether it's through our gospel witness or the witness of someone else. Lord, we just pray that by your spirit that you would work in their lives in this way. And so we pray that you'll bless us as we go, prepare us for the week ahead, encourage us and strengthen us in your word, in Christ, keep us safe on the roads, uh, and just continue uh, to work in our hearts uh, throughout the day and throughout the week. In Christ's name, amen.